expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Admiral Nelson, good morning, sir. You can leave with me if you don't mind flying in a T-33. I'm ferrying one up to Washington. Good. Uh, what's the weather like between here and there? It's clear and cold. I never remember seeing snow this far south. Neither does anyone else, Lieutenant. Give me, gentlemen, if I tell you things you already know. But even the best informed people tend to think of the Gulf Stream as an oceanic river of warm water coursing up the Atlantic coast. In reality, though, it's a rather narrow ribbon of fast-moving current, which acts as a kind of wall, keeping the warm equatorial waters here from mixing with the cold Arctic waters along here. So naturally, the farther east this dividing wall moves, the colder the Atlantic coast of North America becomes. Which is exactly what I believe happened. Something in this area here has caused a slight diversion in the direction of the currents. The diversion increases as it moves northward, producing the freak weather we've been having. Then our mission is to locate the cause of this diversion and correct it, if possible. Exactly. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 25th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the And good morning, welcome to the show where today we're going to be talking about a subject that we've talked about perhaps more, most often on the show than any other subject in terms of its theme, eh Robert? Yes, it is. And yes that, indeed. And that's the whole global warming situation. I wish it was all as simple as that episode, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, you just uh, heard from. Just go out there and change it if you can. You know, back in the 1960s when that air was aired, everybody's fear was that the Earth was getting much colder. Oh, sure, the coming and ice age. The coming ice age. And in, and in that episode, by the way, they were in Florida covered in ice, okay? <laughs> Sounds like this past winter, yes. according to the vacationers. But in any case, we're going to be discussing that basic theme today, and we have basically four subjects. One that has to do with the university environment, because we, of course, broadcast out of the University of Western Ontario in London. And uh, others to do with Wikipedia... Carbon dioxide is the gas of life and the winds of change. What's happening in Ontario with regard to Mr. McGinty and upcoming windmills in our power system? And to join us on the show today, share all these subjects with us. If everything's going okay with all our electronic connections, should be Mr. Lawrence Solomon himself, the author of The Deniers and, of course, a prolific writer in the National Post. Mr. Solomon, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And welcome to the London market. I, I, we don't hear your voice very much in this market. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> or well, is that um, perhaps what we're getting to today? Yes. Uh, I have to say that um, the thing that finally forced me, forced me, made me guilty to pick up the phone and call you to ask you to be on the show was your um, January 30th National Post uh, editorial where you, it was headed, Keeping Canadian Students in the Dark on Climate. And in that one, I understand what happened was apparently you, you appeared on Steve Pakin's The Agenda. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And, and basically the, the premise was climate change is natural. Spending time and money on the issue is largely a waste. And you said that not a single student among the 80 in attendance raised a hand in agreement. 
and you speculated on some of the reasons why. Could you tell us a bit about that experience? Well, uh, normally I, I would expect a, a university uh, group, a bunch of students, to to be lively, to, to have all kinds of uh, different ideas. Uh, this It wasn't the case that way with, um, with climate change. They all seemed to be uh, meekly accepting the perspective that um, that they were told they should be accepting that's that's different than my my historical experience so I'm wondering what's happening to university students is this is this happening across the board or is is there something special about the climate change debate that uh, chills uh, discussion that's a good question because you know in your in your essay I, I found it fascinating you said that if any of these students had done their homework if I may quote you here you said they would have found that the Arctic ice is expanding not shrinking that the Antarctic too is gaining ice not melting that polar bear populations are not in decline that global temperatures have been dropping over the last decade not warming as the computer models had predicted and that in any event none of the computer models on which claims of climate change rest not one has been made to work. Now, are these actual facts, and how would a student know that those are facts versus what he's being fed through the media and, and perhaps the university environment itself? Well, the information is, is really all available that, uh, for anyone who wants to, uh, to dig. If you, if you accept the views of the United Nations Panel on Climate Change, uh, which most people do, including most uh, members of faculty, then you're going to believe that that we are going to hell in a handbasket. But if you actually uh, look at the data, uh, or if you're curious about about the perspectives of the of the many skeptics, and and test what they are saying, um, you'll you'll find that that the views of the skeptics are extremely uh, robust. They actually have uh, data. Uh, whereas the the people on the on the UN IPCC side, those who who um, agree with Al Gore that uh, the globe is warming dangerously, they really don't have data. As amazing as it might um, strike many members of your audience, uh, the data has mostly been um, either made up or manipulated. They're the data simply is not there. Lawrence, I have a question for you. Do you think perhaps part of the problem, this is Robert speaking, is that science seems to be vetted by the media and the government and that a lot of students perhaps even get their, their, their facts from the, uh, people like David Suzuki or from shows like Quirks and Quarks rather than actually going out and reading the journals and going to the libraries and doing the legwork to find out exactly what scientists are saying rather than media personalities. Is that part of the problem? I think that is part of the problem. But in this case, it's actually uh, deeper because um, even a lot of the, the, the journals have become captive in this uh, debate because the journals themselves uh, have become uh, cowed uh, in the same way that the, the journalists have become uh, cowed. And um, the, in this, the, the climate change debate is unusual in that um, to, to actually get at the truth, you have to uh, talk to or look at the writings of the skeptics themselves to see what they're saying and to, to actually test what they're saying uh, for, for validity.
So we learned from ClimateGate that the journals are being manipulated. I think it was a Professor Jones over at East Anglia had to step down when it was revealed that uh, through the emails that they were actually saying that you should not treat this person uh, reliably and, and don't publish his data because it goes against uh, doctrine. So what, what should we do with people when we discover, scientists, when we discover they're, that they're fixing the book, so to speak, <laughs> to use an accounting analogy, but the journals in this case? Well, I think there will be a, a, a comeuppance here. You know, there are six different investigations now underway as a result of the uh, ClimateGate emails. Uh, we're going to start seeing a lot more, and I, I believe we're going to start seeing criminal prosecutions. So a lot of the scientists who have been telling us that, um, that, that we are in great danger um, and along the way receiving uh, government grants to... Um, uh, to do further research in this area. I think we're going to start seeing criminal prosecutions of such scientists because some of those grants would have been acquired under uh, false pretenses. There, there's something like $80 billion now that has gone into climate change research. And um, it's, it's clear from the climate gate emails and, and it's been clear to, to many of us for some time that the, um, the, the grants have been based on uh, on shoddy science. You know what? I have to um, I have to say that I was just reading the Scientific American and the Economist just on the week uh, the weekend, and there's articles in those two journals about climate change, and they're still treating so-called deniers as um, pariah and, and 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 totally incorrect. And they're rather than argue against the science, they're actually putting down. Uh, their their behavior and saying, oh, this fellow is a Christian, so therefore he doesn't, you know, we, we don't want to listen to him, or this fellow has been shunned by the community, so we don't want to listen to him, rather than talk about science. And I used to respect those journals, and now I have to look at them going, boy, is there any journal out there worth reading that I can get both sides of an issue? Do you know of any? Well, I think uh, I think it's changing. I think more and more journals are are starting to uh, report the views of the of the skeptics. Uh, there have been there have been a, uh, very few uh, over the last decade. The Wall Street Journal has been a, an outstanding exception. The National Post um, yes. has been uh, an outstanding exception. Uh, but for the most part, uh, journals have towed the 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 party line. We're seeing big changes. The, um, the biggest change, perhaps, is in the UK, where the, the journals had been um, entirely um, in the camp of the, uh, of the global uh, alarmists. Uh, the BBC has, has done a, a U-turn. They're, they've become very skeptical. They're starting to ask a lot of um, hard questions. Um, we're, we're seeing that as well in, in the, the print media in the UK. We're seeing changes in, um, uh, in Australia uh, as well, and even in, um, in Canada. I think the CBC has started to, uh, to ask questions, whereas six months or a year ago that they didn't at all. It's interesting you mention uh, the Australia example, because later in the show we're going to be hearing a clip from BBC on that very situation in Australia. It'll be more close to the bottom of the hour. Uh, Lawrence, one thing that Robert and I have noticed and observed in in um, covering this issue over the many years is that it seems that whenever you talk to the skeptics on the one side of the issue and the believers 
you know, using that term loosely on the other side of the issue. Uh, it's true what you say, that the skeptics are always talking about data and science and, and, you know, the basic science of it. The one thing I noticed is that the people who are into, um, you know, signing Kyoto and all that stuff, all they talk about is cooperation and talk about, you know, how we can get along and how we can do this and why we shouldn't disagree. And that, that just, to me, is, sends red flags up everywhere. And it strikes me that that the big confusion in the whole global warming debate is the assumption that those on the side who want to, who say they want to save the future and save the planet actually want to do that i don't think that's their motivation at all and it's not it just doesn't seem to be revealed by their actions when you see what they actually do their motivation seems 100% entirely political anti-business anti-capitalist and that's the only motivation isn't that really our problem that we're not seeing the motivation for what it is well, I don't entirely agree with that. I think that most of the scientists, uh, or certainly a great number of the scientists who are uh, preaching doom, uh, seriously believe it. I think that they, they feel that Earth really is uh, in danger. Uh, they think it's, the Earth is, is so much in danger that they can't allow, there's no time for, for um a full debate. There's no time to get to the bottom of the science. They have to persuade everyone that, that we have to embark on, on different crash programs uh, to cut back on, on our carbon um, emissions and, and save the planet. So I think they justify in their own minds um, the, um, the, the lies which are being uh, spread because without them, they, they, they view the public as being uh, ignorant um, they think that politicians are, are um, afraid to take necessary actions and, and that without uh, scare tactics, uh, n- nothing, uh, nothing will be done. So I think, I think that a great number of them uh, really are uh, sincere. Now, but, but, but still you refer to them clinging to these quote-unquote lies that are being spread. Do they know they're lies? Are you saying that they know that they're lies and they're, and they're you know, just being... Um, belligerent about it, and, and sticking to they 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 believe that they're lying in a good cause. Ah, they think that they're lying to to save the planet. Uh, now it also it also is self serving because those lies also um, have the effect of uh, inflating their importance. They have the infe- effect of um, acquiring for them uh, grants to do research. Uh, it, it, they have the effect of uh, allowing them to be published in prestigious uh, journals to hire additional staff to, to to have better titles in their university departments or where they, wherever they happen to be uh, working so there's a lot of reasons that they're getting positive reinforcements for their lies um, but a lot of them I, I am convinced sincerely believe that the planet uh, is in peril so they just get the science to coincide with that belief. Perhaps this is a good time to take our first break. Uh, What we're going to hear here, and I hope you listen in on this one too, Lawrence, Um, you've probably seen this film. You've heard about the great global warming swindle. Yes, I have. And uh, I believe it's a few years old now, isn't it? 2007, I think? Right. And um, 
these next couple of clips on this side of the bumper and the other side of bumper run about two and a half minutes and uh, have to do uh, with some of the issues that you have touched on. And when we return after this break, we will continue our discussion with Lawrence Solomon, Executive Director of Energy Probe and the Urban Renaissance Institute. We'll be back right after this. Scientists accustomed to the relative civility and obscurity of academic life suddenly find themselves publicly attacked if they dare to challenge the theory of man-made global warming, vilified by campaign groups and even within their own universities. It's the old English saying, if you stand up in the coconut shy, they're going to throw at you. So I understand that there's going to be some of that, but it, it, it gets pretty difficult and pretty nasty and very personal. And there have been, uh, you know, death threats and all sorts of things. And so I'm not doing it for my health. These days, if you are skeptical about the uh, litany around climate change, you're suddenly like as if you're a Holocaust denier. By the 1990s, tens of billions of dollars of government funding in the US, UK and elsewhere were being diverted into research relating to global warming. A large portion of those funds went into building computer models to forecast what the climate will be in the future. But how accurate are those models? Dr. Roy Spencer was senior scientist for climate studies at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. He has been awarded medals for exceptional scientific achievement from both NASA and the American Meteorological Society. Climate models are only as good as the assumptions that go into them, and they have hundreds of assumptions. All it takes is one assumption to be wrong for the forecast to be way off. Climate forecasts are not new, but in the past, scientists were more modest about their ability to predict the weather. Any attempt at forecasting changes of climate meet skepticism from the men who model the weather by computer. In making decisions which affect people, a bad prediction as to what the climate of the future will be can be far worse than none at all. I'm afraid that our understanding of the complex weather machine is not yet good enough to make a reliable statement of the future. All models assume that man-made CO2 is the main cause of climate change, rather than the sun or the clouds. The analogy I use is like, my car is not running very well, so I'm going to ignore the engine, which is the sun, and I'm going to ignore the transmission, which is the water vapor, and I'm going to look at one nut on the right rear wheel, which is the human-produced CO2. It, it's that, the science is that bad. And welcome back to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join us. And Robert and I are joined in the studio today by none other than Lawrence Solomon, Executive Director of Energy Probe, and of course a prolific writer on the pages of the National Post. Lawrence, what did you, any comments on what you just heard in that clip? Well, that's exactly the, the situation. It's, it's very hard. It has been very hard for scientists to speak up if they dissent from the um, prevailing orthodoxy. Now that has become uh, better as well. We're seeing more and more scientists come out, uh, speak up, and, uh, and let the public know what, uh, what, what they think. Now, 
you know, it just strikes me as stunning. And I, I've been doing this show for a couple of years, and I've already said many of these things. And I'm not a scientist. I'm no, I'm no genius about the climate, but I've read enough basic things that I always knew the sun was the driver of climate and that, you know, the biggest effects on the earth were the oceans and, and the water vapor. It's as if all this knowledge suddenly disappeared. Where did it go? Like, how did that all disappear? Well, exactly. It, it's, it, it's remarkable the way that suddenly we, we just discarded everything that we knew and replaced it holus bolus with brand new science uh, that was really untested um, and, and, as it turns out, spectacularly wrong. You know, a very good example of that is the, um, is the medieval warm period. This is a period around uh, 1000 AD. So it's now, now, this came up in your criticism of Wikipedia, did it not? Well, yes, it's come up in, 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 in several places, and, I, and including uh, it's also come up with, um, in the ClimateGate uh, emails. Mm-hmm. But until, until about 1990, so for, for most, of, most of the time that, that humans have looked into science, it was understood that the period around 1000 AD was a period, a very warm period, uh, in human history. This was when, um, when the, the Vikings uh, colonized Greenland and, and agricultural colonies were uh, established there. This was when in England um, grapes grew. Um, this, this was a time of, uh, generally of, of culture flowering, of, of human lifespans uh, expanding as, as the temperature um, on Earth uh, moderated. That was a warm period. There was lots of historical evidence about the, the, that warm period, um, as well as a lot of um, scientific evidence. Well, the, that warm period got in the way of the alarmists' need to, to, to scare the public. Another one of those little friendly lies to fit your theory. Is that how it goes? <laughs> well, they wanted to establish that now was unusually warm and how can you make the case that today is unusually warm if we've had warmer periods uh in in recent times and you know in the last thousand years well the short answer is you can't so what they did was (laughs) they had to make that warm period disappear this is what has come out in the climate gate emails that there were discussions going back and forth about how do we make the warm period um disappear and uh the way they did it was by producing uh, what's, what's now known as the hockey stick graph, which in effect got rid of, of that warm period a thousand years ago. It also got rid of a, a very cold period uh, about uh, 400 years ago. And it, it made the last thousand years look um, as if it was a, a period of, of fairly stable temperatures. So it's a, it, it was a long, thin stable period, which, which, um, which is the, the long handle of the hockey stick. And then in the last century, temperatures shot up. And that, that's the, the blade of the hockey stick. And that's why, it's, that's why this, this graph is called the hockey stick graph. And of course, the last century is the, is the highlight point of industrialization, isn't it? That's right. So the, the, the argument that, that scientists started to make only in the 1990s was... Uh, this is an unusual period, and look, in the past, temperatures weren't, weren't this high. Well, somehow, we decided to scrap everything we knew in, about the past and accept these new, 
highfalutin theories that were being put out. In fact, they were being put out by by uh, recent PhDs, people, scientists without without much experience, and and being and and it was just being accepted. Wasn't there another aspect to the hockey stick uh, graph that was ignored as well, and that is the fact that they use proxy data for the last 100, 150 years rather than using the ice data that uh, they had used for the f preceding thousand. Well, none of the, none of the, um, like all the proxy data, uh, whether it's uh, whether it's the bristlecone pines, or um, uh, or ice data, none of this is terribly reliable. Uh, the ice data isn't terribly reliable uh, either because it assumes that the air captured in ice isn't going to uh, change over periods of uh, of thousands of years. Um, in fact, uh, ice changes all the time. There are there are underground rivers, on, you know, under the Antarctic. Um, the at at different temperatures and different pressures, the uh, the the chemistry of the ice uh, changes, and in effect, air gets uh, squeezed out. The ancient air can get uh, squeezed out, and there are also chemical changes that occur. But again, all the science was thrown out. Like we. Scientists know that there are underground rivers uh, under the Antarctic, and if there are underground rivers, then obviously the ice can't be all that stable. The the air in there uh, can't can't be assumed to to uh, uh, remain intact without having any influence for thousands of years. But we threw that science out. We threw our historical evidence out. Um, we we just decided to. Turn on a dime and say, "Oh, that must have all been wrong." And these new studies that just came up, which are untested and, in fact, haven't really been properly reviewed, uh, will just accept it. That's what the UN process was able to do. Is this what happens to science when government gets involved? I mean, once that tap of money starts flowing, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune, and so everybody starts playing that tune. Well, that is that certainly is the the experience. Mm -hmm. um, governments. Uh, do get on policy bandwagons, and we've seen it before in other areas. Uh, they 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 believe something to be true, and they they just push it, and uh, and it's hard to to get funding if you if you have take a different perspective. Well, perhaps that is about to change. We're going to take a break now. Again, we're at the bottom of the hour already, if you can believe it, Lawrence. But we know you'll join us for the rest of the show till the top of the hour. And what we're co coming up next, you mentioned it before. Uh, you, you talked about some of the changing uh, political climate, never mind the real climate, but the political climate around the world. One of those places being Australia. And what we're about to hear on, th on this side of the break and coming out of the other side of the break as well was tape from uh, BBC News World last week on the Monday, I believe it was. And it was basically, uh, I, and I edited it much shorter than the original was, and there's still about six minutes of it here, but it has to do with Australia's political climate change and what's going on in Australia right now. And I wonder if we'll be starting to see this as a hope for the future or maybe a trend in other countries. And we'll be back on the other side of this break. The politics of climate change could be about to change the government of Australia. The Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd is in trouble with a major environment bill which is being blocked in the upper house, the Senate. By blocking the bill, the opposition is risking a snap election and it's received a bounce in the polls under a new leader, a politician who once described climate change as absolute crap. Nick Bryant reports.
It's the world's driest inhabited continent, currently in the grip of the worst drought in a century, what the Australians call the Big Dry. Government scientists have warned that deadly bushfires will become more frequent and more intense, and that large swathes of the shoreline will be uninhabitable by the end of the century, threatening a coast-hugging way of life. Yet climate change scepticism is a powerful and growing force in Australia, both intellectually fashionable and increasingly politically viable. It's the height of the Sydney summer, and these are the kind of lines you'd normally see outside a cricket match. 800 people are packed into this ballroom, 250 have been turned away, and they've gathered for what feels like a revival meeting. They've come to hear the high priest of climate change scepticism, Lord Christopher Monckton. Good day, Australia. With aristocratic panache, the British Viscount delivers an Al Gore-style PowerPoint presentation in which he pillories Al Gore. And then, of course, the arch liar of them all, St. Albert Arnold Gore Blimey. And he says, he says, I believe it is appropriate uh, to have an over-representation of factual presentations on how dangerous it is. That 300 years to be. Listening at the side of the stage is Australia's foremost climate change sceptic, Professor Ian Plymer. His best-selling book, Heaven and Earth, is a demolition job on the scientific case for anthropogenic global warming. And like Lord Monckton, he's viewed by many as an anti-hero. Opposing the green agenda, he claims, has not only become politically respectable, but politically advantageous. In Australia, the mood is changing very quickly. It was certainly political suicide a year ago to stand against that popular political decision. Now, it isn't. And I would imagine in three or six months' time, it again will be very different. The community is shifting their view very, very quickly, and I suspect that our leading politicians in the government haven't got the ear tuned to the public masses. of global warming have changed since the last time the Rudd government tried to enact its emissions trading scheme. There's the failure at Copenhagen to produce a more comprehensive agreement. Massachusetts has made it much more difficult for the Obama administration to push its own green agenda. And then there's Climategate, the accusations that scientists have been massaging the data. Once considered a major selling point, have Kevin Rudd's environmental policies suddenly become a liability. It's the first morning of the new parliamentary year. Kevin Rudd has joined other lawmakers for an ecumenical prayer service. But the fragile pre-Copenhagen consensus on climate change has broken down. The opposition has a new head, Tony Abbott, who won the Liberal Party leadership on the eve of the last emissions trading vote by ousting his predecessor who supported the government's scheme. 
Not that he'd utter the words in church. Abbott once described climate change as absolute crap, a view that's made him increasingly popular as the Prime Minister was forced to concede. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, good start, mate. Well, yeah look, it's, it's been, it's been OK. Are you running? Still a bit it's scary, scary but still, yeah. OK. See ya. Yeah. Yeah. A grassroots movement that's defiantly anti-green. Farmers gather on the lawns of Parliament House to protest against new environmental laws which prevent them from clearing their land. But it quickly turns into a rally against the Rudd government's entire green agenda, including the emissions trading scheme, the ETS. Mr Rudd, Mrs Wong, have a look outside. It's starting to come unstuck for you. I'm sorry about that. There's something of the spirit of America's Tea Party movement. Here he is, the man of the hour. For Tony Abbott, it's yet another platform to hammer the Prime Minister's proposals, something he's been doing almost constantly since Copenhagen. It's a great big tax. We don't need it. And as far as I'm concerned, our job this week is to save Australia from Mr Rudd's great big tax. When Mr Abbott became leader, many pundits thought he was toxic. But a new poll out this very morn has shown the opposition ahead of the governing Labour Party for the first time in three years. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. Robert and I are joined in the studio today by none other than Lawrence Solomon, Executive Director of Energy Probe. Lawrence. Did you happen to catch all of that activity going on in Australia? Yes, the, the political climate certainly is changing there, and it's changing in other places as well. We're um, we're, we're seeing uh, uh, major changes in the uh, U.S. now. Various states are uh, backing away from earlier commitments to uh, having uh, greenhouse gas legislation. So there's something called the Western Climate Initiative, which Ontario actually signed on to, along with various um, other Canadian provinces and various U.S. states. Well, the U.S. states are, are, all ba- uh, are mostly, maybe entirely all of them, backing away from that um, uh, climate initiative, which was going to set up a, a cap-and-trade uh, system on, on a regional basis. So we may, f- we may end up finding that that the that uh, the Canadian provinces are are left uh, to their own devices, and after the U.S. states um, leave uh, leave the game. You know, one thing that I always caution against when when a trend seems to be changing the other way is that the people who see the trend changing celebrate a little bit too soon, and tend to uh, you know think that they've won a victory when really the victory hasn't been as far from being won. Uh, there's still a long way to go on this, isn't there? Well, yes and no. I, I actually do think it's over. You do. I do. Oh, that, that is good news. I do think it's over. It's. I think. Um, that news hasn't hasn't caught up uh, to everyone, in part because the the press um, is still largely uh, in denial. But when you when you look at the at the underlying issues, um, you have first the, the the public has changed. The public throughout the um, the Anglosphere is now. Uh, very skeptical of, of all the claims that were made by the global 
uh, warming doomsayers. A question. Do you think that skepticism is because of the science or because of the cost? Uh, I'm well, wondering what the greater what, what the greater impetus is because usually governments are not that swayed by facts. So it seems, but money is one thing that, that that convinces them. Might that be the only reason we're being saved here? Well, I think governments are changing because the public has changed, not not so mm-hmm. much because of the cost. But I think I think the cost is a big factor in the public's um, uh, mood changing because. And as long as it seemed costless, the public had no reason to to really question the science. But suddenly, when uh, when the public starts seeing taxes being piled on and energy costs becoming higher and lifestyles um, uh, being forced to change, suddenly people are saying, "Well, is this really necessary?" And that's when they start to investigate the science, and that's when they realize that the science isn't there. So I think that's the. The, the process. It's not so much that governments are reluctant to spend money. They, they rarely are. But, um, but the public is reluctant to, um, to sign on without having good evidence. And, and, that, and the public is now testing the evidence, seeing that the evidence isn't there. Well, that's, that's quite reassuring. Uh, you know, in, in terms of, okay, back to the evidence, you know, another, I guess, scientific argument. Uh, you wrote an article, an essay on December 12, 2009, entitled The Gas of Life, and talking about CO2 emissions and how it's actually good for the planet. You know, we live in a city here where we have uh, idling by laws and all sorts of restrictions based upon the belief that CO2 is destroying the planet, or at least that's what they tell us, of course. Um, what's the real facts on on, on CO2? I've I've shot my mouth off enough about it and I haven't changed the world yet on that point but what, what's your take on that? Well there, there are all kinds of harmful emissions that come out of uh, the, the tailpipe of an automobile or, uh, or a coal-fired generating station. We've got NOx and SOx and mercury. Uh, these are all, all these all pose problems to human health and to the environment and, and those should be targeted. Uh, we should be dealing with those emissions. Mm-hmm. But CO2 is uh, is is tasteless. It's odorless. Um, it's um, uh, until recently, it was seen by everyone as necessary to um, to life on Earth. It was called the gas of life. It's nature's fertilizer. We can't have greenery without uh, CO2. You know, greenhouses, in fact, pump CO2 in, into greenhouses in order to to improve their uh, crop yields. Mm-hmm. In the last... Uh, now, it, this is, again, to me, should be common knowledge to people. As I was pointed out in the show, you know, people with certain uh, dryers that vent CO2, you can see the plants growing in their garden, you know, just prolifically around where that exhaust is coming out. Shouldn't that be enough evidence? <laughs> well, well, it should be, and th- that evidence has now been quantified on a on a planetary scale because for the first time we've had satellites measuring the amount of biota uh, on earth and that so we've been getting collecting the satellite data now for several decades and what the data shows is that there's more greenery on earth more biota now than at any time before and a big reason for that is the increase in atmospheric co2 co2 does act as a fertilizer it, it does promote uh, plant growth that is something that environmentalists 
should should like. It's something we all, we all want. We all we all value uh, greenery. So it's it's it has become so perverse that we've decided to target this one uh, element in our um, uh, there's one component in our in our fuel that is benign or beneficial that's co2 instead of continuing to target the the truly harmful emissions is that not maybe because we've almost pretty much dealt with the more harmful emissions i don't think anyone's arguing about those it's always the co2 thing you 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 brought up a fascinating statistic in your article about china you know we always blame china for all the china for all the pollution most of the pollution on the planet and yet with respect to co2 you say and i quote china's plant growth increased by an astounding 24 percent over an 18 period 18 year period studied from 1982 to 1999 that's just that's unbelievable well, and, it, and it's something that, that benefits the, the Chinese uh, populace as well as benefiting the Chinese uh, environment. So CO2 is not what we should be targeting. I think the reason we have been targeting CO2 is not because it itself is, um, is dangerous. Um, I think CO2 to many different constituents represents uh, the evils in society, because CO2 is necessary for um, industrial uh, advancement. And people who don't like uh, cars, who don't like the industrialization, who want a simpler life, who wants to go back to the farm, those, those people who are opposed to a, a consumer society or an industrialized society, on ideological grounds, have latched on to CO2 as the embodiment of evil, and, and attacked it instead of attacking the, 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 the true environmental harms. Well, I, I, would, I would actually correct that. I wouldn't say attacking the environmental harms. I would say instead of attacking the, the industrialists themselves, because I think that's their target. I don't think their target is for a second environmental harm. Because if they picked up the uh, grade two science book, they would know that CO2 doesn't cause environmental harm. But uh, that's just my theory being tossed in on top of this. Uh, you know, we're we're still in um, we're still in uh, what has been celebrated here, particularly at the at the university Black History Month, and we've done a lot of uh, coverage on that on this show in the past two shows. It's interesting how this fits into this issue as well because. Um, this whole idea of CO2 and pulling back on industrialization certainly affects the continent of Africa tremendously. And uh, in addition, when you're talking about the new kinds of um, uh, technologies that they're bringing in and they want Africa to use, and of course here in Ontario we're having the same issue with, uh, with um, Mr. McGinty and bringing in all the, uh, the, the wind turbines and things like that. I'm going to take a quick break here again, Lawrence, just for a couple minutes. And this again is from the, um, um, the Great Global Warming Swindle. And it talks a little bit about the situation in Africa and combines it with what's going on and the situation with wind and solar power. And we'll be back in about two and a half minutes. Wind and solar power are notoriously unreliable as a source of electricity and are at least three times more expensive than conventional forms of electrical generation. The question would be, how many people in Europe, how many people in the United States are already using that kind of energy? And how cheap is it? You see, 
if it's expensive for the Europeans, if it's expensive for the Americans, and we are talking about poor Africans, you know, it doesn't make sense. The rich countries can afford to engage in some luxurious experimentation with other forms of energy. But for us, we are still at the stage of survival. To former environmentalist Paul Driesen, the idea that the world's poorest people should be restricted to using the world's most expensive and inefficient forms of electrical generation is the most morally repugnant aspect of the global warming campaign. Let me make one thing perfectly clear. If we're telling the third world that they can only have wind and solar power, what we are really telling them is you cannot have electricity. challenge we have when we meet Western environmentalists who say we must engage in use of solar panels and wind energy is how we can have Africa industrialized. Because I don't see how a solar panel is going to power a steel industry, how a solar panel you know, is going to power maybe some ra railway train network. It might work maybe to power a small transistor radio. I think one of the most pernicious aspects of the modern environmental movement is this romanticization of peasant life. And the idea that industrial societies are the destroyers of the world. One clear thing that emerges from the whole uh, environmental debate is the point that uh, there's, there's somebody keen to kill the African dream, and the African dream is to develop. The environmental movement has evolved into the strongest force there is for preventing development in the developing countries. We are being told, don't touch your resource, don't touch your oil, don't touch your coal. That is suicide. I think it's legitimate for me to call them anti-human. Like, okay, you don't have to think humans are better than whales or better than owls or whatever if you don't want to, right? But surely it is not a good idea to think of humans as sort of being scum, you know, that it's okay to have hundreds of millions of them go blind or die or whatever. I, I just can't relate to that. Welcome back to CHRW 94.9 FM where we are joined on the phone by Lawrence Solomon, director or uh, sorry <clears throat> executive director of energy probe lawrence what did you think of some of those comments you think anti-human is too strong a statement to make well there are all kinds of environmentalists and and some some would fit into that category and 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 others wouldn't but i think there is something to the idea that we're romanticizing uh peasant life and uh, a lot of people uh, want to harken back to to a simpler uh, time, and those people do tend to oppose uh, industrialization and see environmentalism as a good uh, weapon in, in, with which to do that. So, you know, we we have a situation here, for example, in North America, where we're constantly feeding foreign aid into countries like Africa, into continents like Africa, rather, uh, to many of the countries there, and uh, almost 
preventing them from developing on the one hand so we can feed them foreign aid on the other. Are those two things connected? Because we've been talking a lot about foreign aid on the show lately. Well, they are, and uh, my my foundation deals a lot with uh, with foreign aid. We're probably the, the chief critics of foreign aid uh, in, in Canada be- precisely because it tends to um, hinder uh, development. You know, we, we work with uh, groups at the grassroots level um, in the in the third world, and they they see the foreign aid instruments as as undermining both their um, democracy um, and um, their um, their their traditional their the, the the types of development that they would like to pursue because foreign aid projects um, tend tend to actually harm local economies and that ties in with with climate change um, because a lot of the foreign aid projects that are now being um, uh, sent to the third world uh, directly harm um, people in the third world so let me give you an example when when um, uh, a lot of a lot of foreign aid now is uh, is geared to building hydro dams hmm. well these dams are there's for example in China alone there's something like 900 of these dams that are being uh, developed all of them are uneconomic except for carbon credits that they're getting from the West so uh, none of them make financial sense on their own. Are you saying China is still getting foreign aid from us? Well, they're certainly getting all these transfers, <laughs> yes. Uh, I thought they were uh, becoming a leading nation now. They shouldn't be on the receiving end of foreign aid anymore, should they? Well, we argue that, that foreign, aid, foreign aid harms countries uh, everywhere. It's, uh, it's just stunning that a country of that size with its stature now is still receiving foreign aid. Everybody thought that they were kind of over their major problems. Well, a lot of like, the, the carbon transfers are are perhaps in a in a category uh, by themselves because they're 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 they they have the trappings of of being market mechanisms. So the West is paying to uh, absolve ourselves of of our carbon sins, and we're doing it by by sending these uh, payments uh, to the third world to to um, reduce dependence on CO2 emissions. Well, when when the form that that takes are hydro dams, you end up getting uneconomic hydro dams uh, being built. When you build these dams, you, you often uh, have to relocate people. So the people lose their, their livelihoods. Uh, these people are typically make their living from the river. They might be uh, 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 fishermen or they might be uh, uh, farmers who farm on the banks of rivers because river banks are often very fertile areas in the third world. Well, those we lose those uh, those fertile areas. We lose sources of, of food. Uh, the farmers lose um, uh, their property. Typically, they they they, they don't get uh, fair compensation. Sometimes they get no compensation. Uh, there are environmental costs as well through uh, loss of species, which often uh, occurs when you when you have these hydro dams going in. So there. Are, there are all these um, perverse results as a, as a result of our attempt to reduce um, carbon emissions. Lawrence, you you were saying you're talking about the economic argument of dams, and I think in the past that you've actually talked about nuclear power and how uneconomical it is. 
But just recently, uh, Dalton McGuinty has uh, pledged $7 billion towards the development of solar power in the province. Is it time to reconsider the nuclear option for, uh, uh, for power generation when, when solar power is being looked at and at that's such a huge cost? And wind. <laughs> well, uh, so yes, wind power. Sorry, yeah. we're uh, no. I don't think we should reconsider uh, nuclear at all. Nuclear is um, uh, is ruinously expensive, as is wind. The way the government is proceeding, and as is solar, the way the government is proceeding. What we would like to see is is an end to to subsidies to all forms of energy uh, production. We'd also like to see an end to subsidies um, for to all. Um, uh, all the energy consuming industries and if you just if you remove all the subsidies that that promote um, uh, unnecessary energy use you're going to have a much more uh, efficient society uh, and a, a cleaner society so as well the, let the free market decide what kinds of forms of energy that uh, are developed out there and the consumers in the free market how much they should use that's right, and the result will be uh, 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 wonderful for the environment as well as for the economy. I think Bob and I would agree with you on that one. Well, no doubt. You know, to me, uh, it's not the big, it's not the elephant in the room, really, the failure of government to be able to provide cheap power. Isn't that also part of the impetus behind its, its supporting all these green things? Because... Uh, you know, at the back of everything, they want us to reduce power. They want us to reduce consumption, reduce, 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 as if they can't make enough for us. And is that really what's at the source of the problem? Well, government, government, I think, changes depending on on the flavor of the day. I remember um, in the in the eighties, um, we uh, in Ontario, we were opposed to the government because it was underpricing. Uh, electricity, and in fact, in many parts of the country, the government does underprice electricity. In in um, in Quebec, for example, uh, Hydro Quebec pr- uh, prices its power at below the market rate, and they do that for political reasons. Now, when you say underprice, you mean to the consumer, correct? That the, that the consumer is not paying the direct price when he buys. That's it. right. The consumer, and typically, it's uh, the biggest subsidy of all goes to large industrial consumers. So. Uh, Quebec is is subsidizing electricity intensive industry that costs the province a, a fortune not just in in, in foregone electricity um, subsidies but also in, in other subsidies that the that the Quebec government uh, provides to these industries in order to keep a few uh, a few jobs in in uh, politically sensitive uh, ridings so governments do what is in their interest to get uh, re-elected, and sometimes that leads to higher prices uh, that that than sh- should occur, and sometimes it leads to lower prices than than should occur. Uh, almost always, it leads to uh, to perverse economic and environmental results. Lawrence, believe it or not, our hour is just about up. Before we let we let you go, is, is there a, a website or any place you'd like to direct our listeners to if they'd like to find out more about you and your group and uh, Energy Probe and the Urban Renaissance Institute, etc.? Yes, energyprobe.org. That's energyprobe. Can't get simpler than that. Dot org, and um, you'll there you'll find um, uh, all of our policies, all the columns that I've uh, written over the years. Uh, will be there, and 
along with various features. We have a, something called Ask the Deniers. If, if, <laughs> if you have a question about climate change, um, you can put your question uh, to us, and, um, and we'll, we'll try to get an answer for you. Well, feel free to add both myself and Robert to your list of deniers. Oh, indeed. <laughs> is, is there any... Uh, I think that people should be tuned into the uh, National Post to keep uh, track of uh, your constant articles on climate change. They they're make for excellent reading. You know, in my view, the, the, the National Post is the, uh, next to the Wall Street Journal, the, the finest English language newspaper in the world. So I, I certainly would encourage people to, to look at the National Post. I certainly agree. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lawrence. It's been my pleasure. Hope Thank to you. have you again in, in the future be my pleasure. Terrific. And that's it for us today, folks. I guess we've got to get out of here now. And we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right here next week. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the clothes, Everything will be You know what the most watched television channel is in America? the Weather Channel. <laughs> we don't even have the energy as the people to get up off the couch and look out the window. <laughs>